for citta, you know, what, what references to use to, to talk about citta, you could actually probably include most of the Pali canon if you wished. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere, either implicit or explicit, uh, you know, because this was the central topic. Uh, and it's helpful to, uh, even before we start to call it mind or heart or spirit or awareness, just the fundamental recognition that there is, you know, this term refers to something very intimate and something that uh, can be described as truly wonderful and released uh, liberation. And the Buddha dwells with unrestricted citta, with a citta that has no restrictions, not restricted by aging, sickness, death, suffering. Yeah, so if you look on your sheets, you'll see that reference. And, uh, uh, and a standard reference that's um, almost you know, repeated whenever uh, someone realizes arahantship, enlightenment, it says that citta is released from the asava, from the taints and the defilements, or released through non-clinging. So there, what is this? Yeah. Helpful to, to have this, you know, pointing to this, because we can sometimes uh, get into a rather negative uh, attitude about Buddha Dharma. It's like a kind of complete wipeout, um, you know, an eradication, eroda, cessation. These, these are terms we take as as absolutes rather than well, what ceases actually is is various forms and confabulations of stress suffering, confusion, yeah. yeah, so that's what ceases, and so then we, oh, well, what, you know? so then that sense of we're really looking at some of these terms as as medicinal rather than absolutes, you know, to clear away that which was confused, and then this, uh, then this sense in which this jitta is there, it's our, it's the essence of our life, and then uh, it can lead us onwards and the understanding of this is something to keep your eye on constantly the session build as a study practice session mm-hmm. studying really referring to fundamentally the early Buddhist teachings of the Sutta Pitika and this is the uh, Pali Canon uh, because this is as close as we're going to get to what the Buddha said. Yeah. It's not unlikely he actually said every every one of these words exactly in this way. They've been uh, edited, uh, formulated, uh, stitched together by uh, groups of disciples over the 100, 200 years after his decease. But it's as close as we're going to get. So if we really have a sense of the, the Buddha, uh, then you're not going to get much closer to the Buddha than through this. If you're looking for something that you can nail down, you know. <laughs> and there's a, there's a huge range in these collections. And this is also pragmatic in the Jitta, in the Sutta Pitaka is used in particular ways that are unlike the way it's used, for example, in the Abhidharma Pitika, where it's used somewhat differently. 
and in later Buddhist teachings, it also has different connotations. And uh, yeah, so they seem quite uh, confusing sometimes. Yeah. You look in the Abhidharma Pitika, and Jitta is is a word that's used to refer to every fluctuation of Jitta. So the Abhidharma is based upon one core quality of jitta which is the buddha says nothing changes so quickly as jitta nothing's got so much movement in its jitta it's impossible to describe how quickly this jitta changes so i guess somebody thought well, that's interesting let's try and describe it <laughs> so so you look in the abhidharma and there's all the descriptions of every fluctuation of jitta whether it's based upon you know delusion or or non-delusion so these are all uh, so they, they divide it up like slicing uh, the chitta up into into every movement is a separate chitta but in the in the sutta particularly you don't you don't have that it, it's never sliced up in that way you also find that uh, in post canonical teachings the common material tradition or in theravada uh, buddhism which arises somewhat after the early teachings it's one derivation and one uh, very uh, well tooled quite coherent formulation but it has its own flavorings and one of the fundamental flavorings of the theravada is to try to mix the abhidharma and the suttas together And actually, the Abhidharma and Suttas are. I mean, if you look at the, you look at the text, they're very different styles. Suttas are always sort of declarations and, uh, and narratives and statements, and Abhidharma is an analytical work, metaphysical analytical work. So they're quite different flavorings. And most scholars now agree that the Abhidharma is a somewhat later, maybe 150 years later after the Suttas were laid down. Now just a bit of buddhist history um, in the time of the emperor ashoka there was an attempt to you know really get this thing down now the emperor is a devout buddhist he wants to support buddhist monasteries he's really into supporting the sangha let's really get what buddhism is about <laughs> so one group or one movement called the vibhajavadins they were the analysts and they presented their thing which was this more like the suttas and the Abhidharma. They had their own way of analysing the suttas. And so they apparently gained the emperor's favour and over time they moved south to southern India and Sri Lanka where they gradually formed into this Theravada school. Where originally Theravada just meant the teachings of the elders. You know, it could be any old elders really, but then it became... You know something that's like this particular collection is the teaching of the elders which is a, a mingling of the abhidharma and the suttas and an attempt through commentarial analysis to try to read and interpret the suttas through an abhidharma lens so one of the main abhidharma lenses is momentariness just moment, moment, moment. This is the one of the Abhidharma lenses is to see everything in terms of tiny, tiny infinitesimal mind moments. So this kind of a attitude 
tends to pervade the commentaries and they try to review the suttas from that. So from this you get this thing called vipassana arose. And vipassana is a meditation um, system and you look in the suttas, the term vipassana occurs here and there but not that much. It's not a dominant term, like jhana is much more common than vipassana, much more common, uh, sati is much more common. But the, in, the, in the Theravada, they, they use this vipassana system to be extremely analytical when they meditate. So the idea is you watch the mind moment by moment by moment, and you get very good at watching every mind moment as it arises and passes. Uh, and there's a whole sort of highly developed um, study line and meditation line that comes out of that which is extremely analytical and so on. And this has been taken to a high degree of practice and skill, mostly in Burma and uh, in, in Sri Lanka, but primarily the Burmese who are extremely strong faith in the Abhidharma tend to see this, this vipassana as the pinnacle of the Buddha's teaching and they, their systems of meditation very much use this moment by moment analysis as the practice in which eventually you get the niroda experience with things kind of uh, and it's extremely uh, um, refined and i would imagine it, it has effects <laughs> certainly has effects um, but one is hard pressed to see anything of that nature in the suttas so then <laughs> this means that this may have sounded like a long-winded uh, theoretical uh, analysis Actually, the analysis of the chitta then affects the meditation. <laughs> and so, you know, as you're meditating, you're, you're actually being kind of inducted into this way of sensing and, and operating. So what is a theoretical um, exposition becomes a pragmatic application that affects your own mind. Right? So I think it's very important to get a sense of, you know, what you're doing. Because if jitta is to be understood and approached in this mind-moment, mind-moment, mind-moment way, that will definitely affect how you meditate and how you experience your, your jitta. So the study actually affects the practice. And uh, what I can say is uh, my fundamental faith uh, has to be in the early Buddhist teachings that's as close as going to get to the Buddha other things I have a respectful sense of well that may work and you know but I don't feel that I have to do that in order to be following um, the Buddha's way now as I've suggested in dealing with a theory you're also dealing with what you're being told to do and look for and how to do it. And that will definitely have effects on your chitta. Uh, so just leave it like that, maybe so. And my suggestion why I presented a fairly you know, wide range of readings is to say, well, just that you look at it over this and that and this and that. And this. some of these are more poetic 
they're kind of exhortations, they're inspired utterances, some of them are rather cryptic, they're meditation experiences, some of them are exhortations. You look over the broad spectrum of the way this term is used, how does it strike you? How does it strike you? What do you think he's talking about? What do you think is being referred to? So you look, if you look at the broad picture, recognising, you just look at one feature, then you might get a rather partial view. If you just look at the momentariness of chitta, you're going to get a rather partial view. But the important thing to, I would suggest, is you see that the Buddha gives extreme emphasis on the need to train and brighten and purify the chitta. Is often the term purify and release the chitta from corruptions that it easily takes on. This is the fundamental bit. In looking at some of these terms, what we have here is English translations of Pali texts. So you've got a couple of... um, processes to to consider. First of all, the experience is being verbalized, direct experience is being verbalized. Well that's already a translation, right? You know, what we experience is being caught up in a verbal pattern. And that verbal pattern, one would assume, must come from the Indian Vedic Upanishadic context. These are the people who are using this language. They weren't Westerners, they weren't post-humanists, they weren't rationalists, they were, you know, Upanishadic, Vedic um, summoners and householders. That was their language. And now we don't have their worldview. This is 2,500 years ago. We don't have their worldview. We can try to put these words into English or French if you like and you realize you know it's going to be a near probably a you know a near miss <laughs> or an approximation is going to occur. You know just translating things from French into English is difficult enough sometimes. Right? And it's more or less a very similar mindset. So translating things from Pali which was a language specifically derived from uh, all kinds of vernacular Indian dialects in order to hold these teachings, translating that with the nuances and the backgrounds uh, and the contextual underpinnings of that that language into a Western language which doesn't have them. There's going to be uh, some things to chew over and as we might see, I've tried to use some pretty standard translations, but even very skilled scholars who I are going to find it using different words to describe the same thing. So this can be confusing because you don't realise how many times this term occurs because different translators translate it differently. And even this very word chitta, as I point out in the... Um, in the notes, you know, you have mano. So if you translate it as mind, then you've got to deal with what do you call manas or mano. 
that's also mind. What do you call consciousness? <laughs> you know, vijnana. What do you call intellect? And if you look in the English language, intellect, emotion, psyche, awareness, spirit, heart, you know, knowingness. You've got all kinds of terms you can throw around uh, into this, uh, into this, um, this, this, uh, this term chitta. So bear in mind the words are to be handled respectfully but lightly to help perhaps point towards an, a direct experience. And this is where the study must be a practice uh, to see where do the words take you uh, and uh, what's the result of them. And if they're not taking you anywhere useful, put them to one side for a while, get back to it later. So when you review the texts, um, bear that in mind. What you don't understand, just just read it, see what it does to you. Read it slowly a few times and see what's coming up for you uh, and see what resonates for you. But you might don't make that conclusive. You might change your mind in a few in a few days. That's what that means, even uh, Sometimes it takes years um, to to get a direct experience of what's being pointed at. Some of these uh, experiences they've been pointed at are extremely subtle and uh, and uh, uh, refined. So let's have a look at one of the more user-friendly um, texts, Dhammapada. Very, uh, much translated text because it's 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 not that technical it's it's a kind of slightly poetic encouragement text yeah uh, and naturally the the chapter on chitta the third chapter and this is the first of your readings a1 dhammapada 3 chitta taken some verses from that uh, Wonderful, wonderful indeed. Sadhu is the word that's used. Wonderful indeed. It is to subdue the chitta. So difficult to subdue. Ever swift and seizing whatever it desires. A tamed mind, a tamed chitta brings happiness. Wonderful. Something kind of, you know, the Buddha is speaking with a sense of real gladness and appreciation. Let the discerning man or discerning one, Medavi, guard the mind so difficult to detect and extremely subtle, seizing whatever it desires. A guarded mind brings happiness. Dwelling in the cave of the heart, the mind without form wanders far and wide, far and alone. Those who subdue this mind are liberated from the bonds of Mara. Mara, the deceiver, the word literally means something like death, Mara, 
mean, deathless is amara, death, delusion, um, bad stuff. <laughs> Wisdom never becomes perfect in one whose jitta is not steadfast. So this jitta can be made steady. It can be subdued. It brings happiness. It should be guarded. And um, But you need to be steadfast. So resolution to it. And this with resolution and steadfastness, something called wisdom will arise. A steadfast jitta and one who knows the good teaching. And so if one is not steadfast and doesn't know the teaching or what the teaching is pointing to, and one's faith, one's confidence, one's openness wavers, then there's no wisdom. So we're seeing right here uh, a very simple sketch of what's needed. Jitta is there. It's almost the, the basic fact of existence is that we experience something. We are we are experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. We are experiencing. The fact that we are experiencing is chitta. Something's landing somewhere. There is an experiencing and there's a knowing of that. There's a sense of handling or being affected by that. This is chitta. It's it's seamless. It's uh, you can't step out of it. Yeah. The very fact that experience happens and is known, is, is, is experienced. And so then and it's fluctuating and moving and urges and drives within that. Therefore, steadfast, some resolution and having a teaching and a training and having faith, which means that there's a sense of giving it time that Staying open, uh, persevering, then there will be wisdom. And seemingly wisdom plays a very significant feature in this uh, process. There is no fear for an awakened one, one whose mind is not sodden by lust, passion, nor afflicted by aversion who's gone beyond merit and demerit, or you might very easily say good and evil. So, so the awakened one has somehow gone beyond good and evil. Jitta has moved out of, the, of that, um, that frame of reference through and not affected by passion or hatred. Realising that this body is as fragile as a clay pot and fortifying this mind like a well-fortified city. Fight out Mara with the sword of wisdom. Then guarding the conquest, remain unattached. There's an endeavour here. There's a sense something quite firm and and incisive. Yeah. 
recognizing the fragility of life and sense of urgency something needs to be made steady and firm citta and to clear out this mara quality and you clear it out with wisdom with clarity with seeing with understanding and then remain unattached so the fundamental uh, recognition being pointed to here is somehow citta is stuck is is grasped is held is bound up and to release it from its being bound there needs to be something sharp and incisive wisdom Whatever harm an enemy may do to an enemy or a hater to a hater, an ill-directed mind inflicts on oneself a greater harm. So there's no, nothing can harm you as much as an ill-directed mind. This is manifestly and painfully true. You know, we are, uh, maybe, uh, there are more suicides than homicides these days. More people kill themselves than are killed by others. Why is that? Yeah, because of the chitta, despair, you know, pointlessness. So, more people are killed by their own minds than by their enemies. Consider that. And uh, when you look at that very stark fact, you'd also recognize it's so, even people who don't kill themselves, we have an incredible tendency and talent for doing ourselves harm through various forms of addiction, pressure, uh, compulsion, um, going in confused directions, um, getting deluded, getting caught up with this, that and the other. Ideologically, um, morally, uh, following wrong, wrong views uh, and we have a huge capacity to do ourselves harm and that's all led by the, the confused, ill-directed jitta. Neither mother, father, nor any other relative, relative can do one greater good than one's well-directed jitta. So there it is. This is an exhortation saying, you know, you can, you've got to get hold of this. You can't just do it as a hobby. <laughs> you know, this thing is running all the time. And it can go in any directions and it could go in some very difficult directions. Yeah. Somebody was telling me just the other day, you know, he was he lived on a uh, boat, uh, canal boat community. And one of the people in a nearby boat, a young woman, in her 20s. And, you know, she spent, she's going out and she's um, redecorating the boat and fixing it up and doing things and they live in this community and he goes out for a walk and then one comes back and there's this body bag 
on the canal bank and she's killed herself. What, you know, what, what happened? What happened? You know, what, what, what happened there? She's, you know, 25 years old. She's, you know, got, obviously got some resources. Um, she's got no enemies. What happened? Deliberate. No note, just enough. So, you know, and if you just even look at the mood swings that so you look, you see, you can say, what's that? Mood, isn't it? Mood of depression, despair, self-hatred, self-criticism, pointlessness of life. That's made by chitta does that to you. Yeah. And that will certainly diminish you, cripple you, uh, and even kill you. So as we all know, when we begin to recognize we you know that just the mind you wake up with in the morning the mind you go to bed with at night the mind that happens when you look at the news the mind that happens when you look at the weather the mind that happens when you're sitting on your own feeling lonely bored or the mind that happens when you you know can't get out can be gloomy and difficult and sense of hopelessness can occur, or isolation can occur, loneliness can occur, anxiety can occur. So all this is the things that afflict the chitta. And these have to be pruned away, can be pruned away through the sword of wisdom. The mind has to be well directed. Just to continue, this sangsara is without discoverable beginning. Sangsara, another piece of language, the word literally means something like running on. It doesn't mean um, sensory reality, it doesn't mean um, the world, the physical world, it means a psychological process of running on, racing on, onwards, onwards, onwards is without discoverable beginning. So just like a gerbil on a treadmill, you know, it's important the treadmill, it's running and running and running. Where's the beginning of this? Where's the end of this? Sangsara doesn't know. But the, um, the driver of this is ignorance and craving. Therefore, ignorance and craving. So we're beginning to get some picture of what it is that takes hold of the jitta, ignorance, not seeing clearly, and craving, some kind of hunger, thirst, is the literal translation of the Pali word here, tanha. Very important to distinguish tanha, craving, from desire, chanda, the two are often conflated. But chanda can be uh, unskillful, but chanda can be skillful motivation to practice as a desire uh, desire for to to generate goodwill is a desire skillful desire tanha is always about wanting to suck something in wanting to be something hold something you know and chandra is more about wanting to do something and bring something forth that's good so they distinguish between tanha and craving and it's craving is a pathological unquenchable clawing at something to fill me up. 
and saying there's no end to that. You know, you've had this and that and this and that. So it naturally tends to move out into sense objects, but it also moves out into psychological objects such as status, renown, praise, esteem, um, and so on. Therefore, one should reflect upon one's own jitta thus. For a long time, this jitta has been defiled, uh, worn down uh, uh, by lust, passion, raga, hatred and delusion. Through the defilements of the mind, beings are defiled. With the cleansing of the mind, beings are purified. So it's... uh, We... Fundamental practice uh, for liberation is called purification. It's a cleaning, cleaning of the jitta from these confusing influences. I do not see even one other thing that when tamed, guarded, protected and restrained leads to such great good as the jitta. The jitta when tamed, guarded, protected and restrained leads to great good, great welfare. So, I mean, that gives us the obvious, perhaps obvious to you, um, axis of what practice is about. And um, so we've seen some references there. Mood, um, mental state, uh, emotional equilibrium, um, recognising... impulses, impulses towards violence, towards abuse, towards abusing and violence towards oneself, violence towards others, impulses. This is an aspect of what jitta does. Uh, Impulses towards greed, grabbing and seizing a lot of things that are unsatisfying. This is what jitta does. And uh, so we're seeing some of this and we begin to sketch that in. Therefore, this sense of restraining, checking the impulse, fundamental practice, checking the mood, because the mood itself, will, you know, the mind state, or something that, as we experience that, it, it invites sangsara. It says, you experience a mind state. Something wants more of it, or less of it, or feels angry about it, or upset about it, or fascinated by it. So this is where this whole wheel starts turning. The mood, the inclination of the jitta become a source of samsara. So how do we, when we recognize this, you know, ask anybody, Jitta seems to always have some kind of mood. It could be agreeable, pleasant, light, slightly worried, uh, intense, uh, eager, fascinated, despairing, um, reckless, hatred. It seems to always be covered. It's like the weather. It's always covered with something. And so (laughs) how does this, how do we get... You know, how do we train this? What's going to train it? You know, what trains that? 
What is it that can, how can mind release mind? How can something that is, can be so mercurial and uh, um, amorphous and, uh, how, and, and how can that be, how can we train it? What can train it? Now, the fact that one can, there can be a training of it, which is said more or less immediately comes up, why uh, the word is used, because this is, this jitta is something that can be trained. Otherwise, the Buddha wouldn't have bothered to talk about it. Uh, and uh, so it's eminently trainable. So it's trainable by having wise or skill picking up wise or skillful messages and beginning to use those against or in contradiction to the unskillful messages. Now, the fact that we can even recognize something is good or evil means that jitta actually is not the weather, the moods that it goes through. These are coverings that roll over it the fact that we can be aware of suffering and stress the fact that we can be aware of anger and guilt we can be aware of happiness and eagerness and passion and confusion and just feeling slightly dreary is an indication that jitter is never completely uh, overwhelmed there's always some sense of light to be able to recognize what's going on no we're not completely uh, instinctive we're not just completely uh, absorbed in mind states there can be a witnessing of mind states and this is the the, the fundamental realisation that, that gives us the sense of faith now one analogy to bear in mind the jitta in some respects is rather like a body in some respects it's rather like a body so you know you can have pain in your knees you can have a headache and your body can part of your body can still function rather well and uh, you know if, uh, so you, it's locally but what you're absorbed and you tend to be absorbed in the headache or the pain or the discomfort but actually it's never the whole body is never completely overwhelmed with it the overwhelming is when we get focused on that feature alone so if we come into the whole body you, the body can know oh this is painful yeah and it will tend to you know uh, protect the painful areas uh, it will tend to bring energy into areas that need wounds addressed it begins to um, level out it, it seeks to cure itself you know if you cut yourself you, you, the body will start to work on it if you get sick, the body will start to work on clearing out the illness. So <laughs> the body, you know, so rather like the, the, the body, the mind can know its own sickness, can know its wounds and difficulties. And, it will, and if, we, if it knows it or recognises it in the right way, it will tend to clear those. Yeah, it will tend to work against those. So the chitta seeks its own welfare but 
what the big error that Chitta makes is when he experiences a mood or a pain or an anger or an irritation, it tends to obsess with it. This is attachment. So then the word for that experience is called self. This is, I am really annoyed. I'm having a bad day. I'm having a great day. I'm in a good mood. Uh, it's just this, this word comes out, I, I am. That word indicates, when it's used in that way, indicates jitta is identifying with a mind state. And it's then it becomes that mind state. And with the sense of perspective whole picture gets lost and as from the identification the binding to then that mind state is then acted upon uh, worried about um, queried, analysed and it, this is samsara yeah. so then it starts rolling through this process of attaching and from the attaching come the attaching brings the word I and me into it. So one of your fundamental practices is just to, just to acknowledge this is a mind state, this is a mood, this is an impression, this is an impulse. And I can witness that. There could be a witnessing of that. Now, this process of witnessing this is the which gives rise to wisdom. It means you begin to recognize, oh, that's just the mind state. And also that when it's not bonded to, attached to, acted upon, reacted around, it is it, its nature is to change. It begins to loosen and release. Um, so this is one of the insight realizations, the realization of changeability through non-attachment and when the Buddha gave his primary and central teaching the Four Noble Truths said dukkha stress, trouble, unsatisfactoriness uh, is to be realised is to be understood not to be reacted to and it says, when I, when I looked at this, when I realised it, I knew there is dukkha. And to know there is dukkha, this is light. This is wisdom. This is clarity. Yeah. And they use these sequence of phrases. So just to know there is dukkha rather than I am suffering. I am stressed out. I don't see why this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? Yeah. I don't feel good. <laughs> so, no, if there's a... Ah, here is a sense of disappointment, regret, fear, anxiety. Ah, so just this is already a degree of light, clarity, realisation, knowledge and insight. Because what's happening is jitta has disengaged from the mood to witness it. Now these um, moods, impulses, and there's a whole 
discussion or it will be discussion on what constitutes the material that jitta is bonded to it's called the five kanda we'll get to that later uh, this is so uh, instinctive and compulsive jitta moves so quickly and bonds so quickly says you have to have steadfast and resolute in order to just keep so meditation practice by and large will always present some firm pillar post reference point foundation basis that you keep bringing your jitta to to steady it so it doesn't keep running out you say just stay here it runs up and stay come back again so you you're using this is the process of uh, samatha calming and through sati mindfulness that is one is mindful of the chitta one is noticing chitta you're noticing it running out and you mindfully return to your meditation object and stabilizing that so through this stability of it you begin to weaken the tendency for the jitter just to run out into its moods said difficult to subdue ever swift and seizing whatever it desires (laughs) for a long time uh, once jitter has been defiled it's been running out for a long time so this sense in which this using a meditation object such as breathing in and out awareness of the body um, to give the chitta something to bond to deliberately so that it lets go of its other outflows uh, other runnings out I mentioned body because um, this is uh, the Buddha always begins meditation mindfulness of body is the foundation the first foundation because you know body both is and isn't you know associated with jitta um, you know so we can sense body you can feel when you feel strong emotions you can feel them in your body when we feel fear we feel it in our body when we feel sad it feels it in our body when we feel happy we feel it in our body when we feel love and openness and friendliness we feel it in our body so jitta runs through the body definitely that's apparent so you can detect in the bodily sense well there's that but also the body has physical qualities feet back breathing and so you can refer these emotional patterns which are running into your body you can keep referring that back to your to your physical body or your somatic energy body you've got that ability to cross refer the activated emotions in the body to the presence of the body and through this you're not reacting to the moods and emotions you're not thinking about them you're not analyzing them you're not blaming yourself for having them you cut all that mental activity short and you just that's that and you're bearing that in mind how is this affecting the body okay and it's making us my chest is closing my blood is getting hot i'm feeling nervy and agitated okay within that can you find 
where your out breath is and where your back is and where your spine is and the whole body down to your feet oh. and it's doing that this pattern of agitation begins to release because you're not bonding to it not sangsaring it <laughs> and it's the opposite of sangsara sangsara like many Pali words seem like a noun it's also a verb it's a gerund sangsara is running running on binding so we you can say there is sangsara also is sangsara something that we do we sangsara we keep running yeah. and the opposite of that is nibbana nibbana means unrunning or unbinding so you know we, we might think nibbana is a noun it's a state we get to um, not really it's a kind of a it's an action of unbinding that is of letting go of that pattern of bonding of binding releasing that this is nibbaning so you can either sangsara something or you can nibbana it <laughs> and the recommendation is well <laughs> anything that inclines towards enabling you to get unbound so you're not stuck is going to give you much more capacity to decide whether you want to clearly engage with something or not you're just unbinding from the compulsions Clearly the Buddha, having realised Nibbāna, he still kept going, you know, he didn't stop thinking and acting, but he wasn't compulsively attached to it. So Nibbāna gives you that, that freedom to, to, because you're not bound up in the sense of witnessing and detachment around actions. So let's pause for today.